Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On the morning of Sunday the 10th of August 1969, Victor Ford Lloyd yawned as he staggered down Eaton Place, still feeling a little bit tipsy as he chuckled to himself at the night he just had. Looking rough after a long hot night, at about 9am, Sir William's butler returned to 69 Eaton Place. Sir William Ackroyd's residence. There's a body upstairs. I think it's Sir William's butler. But as he stood, staring at the corpse of Frank Hocking, his best friend, his lover, and the man he owed his life to, Victor knew that everything which was good about his life had been stolen from him in an instant. Victor was nothing without Frank, and he knew it. It didn't take long for Detective Chief Superintendent Ivor Reynolds to assess and dismiss the myriad of possible motives for Frank's brutal murder. This wasn't a robbery, as nothing was stolen. This wasn't a burglary, as the outdoors and windows were intact. This wasn't mistaken identity, as over the bed hung Sir William's portrait. And this wasn't a homophobic attack, as Frank hadn't been threatened. Judging by the trail of detritus that Frank had left in his last moments alive, he had undressed in a small bedroom, placing his clothes on an armchair and a pile of underwear on the floor. But having already been assaulted, With his shirt cuff stained with blood, someone had let him change into his night attire of blue pajamas and white socks, only then to kill him. Prior to his death, a bitter argument had taken place. As the bedroom door was forced open, a white lamp had been broken, and a clump of Frank's hair had been ripped out at its roots. At some point, Frank had voluntarily entered Sir William's bedroom. He had got into bed, and lying face up and straight, 
he had covered himself in a crisp white sheet, as if he was going to sleep. Toxicology reported a high level of alcohol in his blood and a strong smell on his breath, as well as considerable concentration of urine in his trousers and vomit on his shoulder, in his airways and on the bedsheets. The autopsy confirmed that while lying down, yet still awake, Frank had been brutally bludgeoned over the head several times with a hammer. With no impact injuries to his arms or hands, he hadn't attempted to protect his face, so it's more likely that the fatal blows were swift and unexpected. Upon examination, it was clear that Frank's face and body was a patchwork of defensive wounds. Some cuts, some scratches and some bruises. And although a few were fresh, the majority told tales of old assaults. Above his right ear lay a deep impression fracture, one and a half inches long, one and three quarter inches wide and two inches deep. The weapon was heavy, and leaving a hexagonal mark, it perfectly matched any household hammer. One blow would have been enough, but slightly above that was a second, three and a half inches wide. With his skull smashed in, as blood pooled across the pillows, he sustained extensive hemorrhaging to the brainstem and temporal lobes which rendered him paralyzed and unconscious. Examined just shy of 10 a.m., he had been dead for 10 to 12 hours, but it had taken him an additional six hours to die. The crime scene itself wasn't a great mystery for DCS Reynolds, as finding a pink bloodstained shirt hidden under a shelf in the utility room and a white bloodstained shirt in the laundry basket. The question wasn't whether he had done it, but why? In the utility room, where Albert, the pampered Pomeranian, slept, a steel-headed, wood-handled, foot-long hammer was missing. And after a brief search, it was found under a cushion on a floral armchair. The blood on its head matched Frank's, and the fingerprints on the handle would later match Victor's. With Frank dead, and with Sir William in Scotland, the police had just one suspect, and enough evidence to prove his guilt. But what they really wanted was a confession. At 10.25am, in the upstairs hallway, I am Chief Superintendent Reynolds. I request your assistance while I make inquiries into Mr. Hawking's death. To that, Victor agreed. Victor's lack of emotion had intrigued him. As he professed to be upset, only his eyes said otherwise. There were no tears, no sobs, nor quivers. Which was odd, as Victor was a very emotional man. 
everyone knew that, being unduly sensitive about his upbringing, he was prone to outbursts of tearful anger. And when he did something wrong, he would lie until he could lie no more, even when the truth was glaringly obvious. During his questioning, Victor would give several accounts of his movements that night. But the question was which one was right. Where did you go yesterday? We went out for dinner in Noah's Ark in Oxford. What did you drink? Quite a lot. Five or six big martinis before dinner and Frank had two or three brandies. When you arrived back at 69 Eaton Place about 1am, did you go in with Frank? No, I saw him to the front door. I was going on to get coffee and cigarettes. Did he know that? No, Frank was sloshed. And I didn't want him to come. He's always nagging. So I left him at the lift. And after that? I went to Crockford's to play roulette... I stayed until 4am, winning £200. I tried to get into the Playboy Club, and not wanting to wake anyone up, I stayed at the Hilton in room 1215. I left at about 8.30am, and I got home by taxi about 9am. The police knew this was untrue, but the best way to trap the guilty is to hang them with their own lies. Examined by Dr. Lovell, Victor had two scars running across his forehead from an old car accident and five fresh abrasions on his lower lip, cheeks and mouth, which he blamed on shaving cuts. And although this was possible, it was as the police probed further that his answers became hazy and uncertain. I'm a bit confused about the days and times. I'm not trying to put up a defence of blaming this on liquor. I'm trying to be helpful as things are slowly coming back to me. Let us start from the beginning. Frank and I work for Sir William Ackroyd. Frank is his manservant and I am his butler. Only he was not Sir William's butler. And just like the bulk of his statements, most of it was a lie. In July 1968, having heard about his tragic upbringing, being raised in a boy's home, fleeing to Australia, and his descent into petty crime, Frank introduced Victor to Sir William, who wanted to help. All of that is true. When I went to 69 Eaton Place, I worked for Sir William as his butler. But that was not. Sir William would state, I did not pay him, and he was never in my employ. With Frank as Sir William's manservant and valet, Victor did odd jobs to help out, such as dog walking, shopping, a little DIY using the flat's toolkit, and he was briefly a chauffeur until he lost his license owing to a drink-drive conviction. 
using his contacts, Sir William found him some work. As a salesman at John Michael's Tailors on Savile Row, which he lost owing to lateness. As a catering assistant at Searcy Tansley, a job he lost owing to suspicion of theft. And at Fordnum and Mason's as a waiter. Only Victor would state that he wasn't a waiter. I was a butler. At the time of the murder, he was working part-time in this job. And although his employment was so he could pay the £4 a week to stay in Sir William's spare room, not a penny was paid in rent. It should have come as no surprise that Victor couldn't stop his sticky fingers. Across their year-long friendship, he stole from Sir William. He cashed stolen checks. He pawned a set of gold cufflinks. And he brought goods from Harrods and Fortnum and Masons. To such an extent that Sir William had to close both accounts. It's likely that this was overlooked. As Sir William is an alcoholic. And Frank is as well. Having been an alcoholic since he was 16... Although Sir William had paid twice for Victor to enter an exclusive detox clinic called the Priory, his return to Sir William's flat was akin to a sex addict living above a brothel. There was no denying that the relationship was complicated. Being three gay alcoholics, Victor described their love life as a complicated triangle. As a result of my being there, a relationship grew between Frank and I. And although kept a secret, many close friends knew that Sir William was dating Frank. After four months together, it terminated. On my part, but not his. I tried to case it off by kindness but it developed into a holocaust of rows and screaming and scenes. As a result, Frank drank more, I drank more, and so did Sir William, until it reached the stage where physical violence came into it. Being so hot-headed, it was not uncommon to see Frank and Victor bickering and coming to blows. With screeching voices, scratched faces, and hair pulled with clumps yanked out of the roots. Being the smaller of the two, Frank's face and body was often a patchwork of black eyes, purple bruises, and red cuts. Without the generosity of Frank and Sir William, Victor was nothing. He knew it, he just couldn't accept it. On Friday the 1st of August 1969, Sir William left 69 Eden Place on a two-week break, leaving his flat in the capable hands of Frank, his manservant, as well as his house guest, Victor. For Frank, this should have been a chance to relax, but with their fights growing more volatile, the more they drank, the worse it got. 
on the night of Friday the 8th of August. James Olive, the chauffeur, drove both men to the Noah's Ark restaurant in Oxford, as confirmed by the head waiter. Frank and I were on friendly terms during the meal. Which was a matter of perspective, as always firing snide remarks and hurtful barbs at each other. No one saw their bitter spat as anything other than normal. What they spoke of that night is unknown. But clearly, Frank's patience had begun to wear thin. Over the previous weeks, Victor, the part-time waiter, seemed flush with limitless funds. He wore tailored clothes he could never afford, and several items of Sir William's had gone missing, such as a gold watch, a gold money clip, an antique lighter and a cigarette holder, with a receipt later found for a local pawnbroker. As I had paid for lunch... He picked up the bill. This was confirmed by the restaurant. The police would later probe. When you arrived back at 69 Eaton Place about 1am, did you go in with Frank? No, I was going on to get coffee and cigarettes. Frank was sloshed, and I didn't want him to come. He's always nagging, so I left him at the lift. And although Victor would state that this had happened on the Saturday, the evidence would dispute this. As by that point, Frank would have already been dead for several hours. Saturday the 9th of August started as normally as any morning for a man who was about to be murdered. Frank awoke, he made coffee and toast, he fed the dog, he checked the post, and he did all of the things he would normally do, only this time it was for the last time. Although he wouldn't know that, and neither would his killer. After Noah's Ark, Victor had headed out to a club on the King's Road. Drinking, dancing, and flirting. On whose money, we shall never know. Only a call was about to rudely awaken his festering hangover. Frank, it's the manager of the Noah's Ark. Your cheque, it's been rejected. My cheque? But I didn't pay. It's a cheque in the name of F.A. Hocking. Only the signature... It isn't yours. That morning, neither Victor nor Frank were seen by another living soul. A bitter fight was overheard by two of the neighbours, but no one called the police, as their hate-filled spats were not uncommon. At 1pm, Frank sat alone in a French restaurant called Coco Van. Dressed in a brown open-neck shirt and fawn trousers, later found on Sir William's bedroom floor, he silently mulled over his love life 
eating a last meal of spinach, potatoes, and tomato, and slugging back several large dry martinis. At 2:30 p.m., like a bad smell from a broken sewer, Victor walked in. A little sheepish at his actions, but equally obstinate over the veracity of his lies. So, I picked up the wrong checkbook. Mistakes happen. And yet, being dressed in a black jacket and trousers, worn when he later discovered his boyfriend's body, and a crisp white shirt, Frank knew that these were purchased on Sir William's account. At 3 p.m., paying the ten-pound bill by signing his own check with his own name, another stark reminder of Victor's mistrust. Frank left, and Victor followed, as they both headed back to the same flat. At 3:30 p.m., from the phone in the flat, Victor made a call to Boodles, the private members' club in St James's. In which he posed as Sir William, confirmed by Alfred Russell, the head porter. In an unconvincing upper-class voice, Victor said, "I should like to send my chauffeur, Victor, with a check for twenty-five pounds." As having done the scam before, he knew that a cash loan over this limit required the approval of the club secretary. It's unclear whether Frank overheard this call, but if he did, maybe this was the last straw. In a later confession, believed to be as truthful as Victor could be, he would state, "We were both fairly liquored up, and he started screaming and carrying on." Frank had been stamping about the house, banging doors and everything. Although with the neighbors out, this cannot be verified. In Frank's room, he had thrown a vase at me. He had started getting violent, and said, "You like watching the box so much? See what joy you get out of this!" And with a wallop, the TV went over. The police later found a broken vase in the kitchen, and when it was switched on, the TV smoked. At this point, although it was still only late afternoon, being drunk, upset, and possibly having taken a sleeping pill, Frank got into his pajamas. I went into the master bedroom, Sir William's, whilst Frank was ranting and raving. I locked the door from the inside, but Frank bashed the door through and started screaming and raving, which was true, as the door was broken in, and the smashed lock lay four feet inside the bedroom. Inside, the fight continued. He could hardly walk because he was so drunk. He got himself onto the bed, still screaming and ranting. He said. Come to bed, but I said no. I'm going out for coffee. As it always did, 
Their bitter fight descended into physical violence. With long nails, Frank scratched the victor's face, leaving cuts that he would later claim were shaving wounds. And as he asked me, who I'd been sleeping with and all this nonsense? The one thing Frank can't stand is having his hair pulled. So I grabbed his hair, and a handful came out. As noted by a clump of Frank's hair found on the floor. But as much as the punches and kicks hurt his body, Frank knew where to dig the knife into his soul. As everyone knew, sometimes Victor's emotions got the better of him. And being unduly sensitive about his upbringing, often he was gripped with anxiety and was prone to short bursts of tearful anger. I went downstairs and I got hold of the hammer from Albert's room. I took it to warn Frank that if he did not shut his raving mouth, I was going to knock him out. It was just a threat. But then he started raving on about my mother being mental, that I'd go to bed with old men for money, that I'd been to prison, and that I was a cheap, dirty whore. It was then that I went behind him. The evidence would prove the victor was standing behind the bedhead beside the broken lamp when he attacked. I told Frank, if you don't shut up, I'll belt you with this. He kept ranting and threatening me to do it. And it was then that I struck him. I hit him over the head with a hammer. Blood started pouring out. So I pulled over the blanket and I struck him two or three more times as the autopsy would confirm. I covered up the whole scene. I picked up the pieces of vase and put them in a red bag in the kitchen. I straightened up the television. I then had a wash, a shave and changed my shirt. Placing his blood-stained white shirt in the laundry basket and popping on a freshly ironed pink one. But this still leaves us with an odd, unanswered question. Having brutally murdered Frank inside a secluded flat, given that he didn't call the police for another 16 hours, why didn't he destroy any evidence of his crime? Instead, he would head out on a long, hot night of fun. So did he not care about his dying lover? Or did he know that this night would be his last? Picked up by a Daimler at 5.33pm, Hermanus Loganberg, the chauffeur, drove a man who called himself Sir William Ackroyd to Boodles. Inside, the pink-shirted man handed the head porter a letter supposedly written by Sir William and his butler was handed £25 in notes. To toast his last night of freedom, at 5.55pm, he ordered a Bloody Mary at the Dorchester Hotel 
at 6.15 p.m. He ate vichyssoise, crab meat, and glugged back a bottle of Plonk at the Brompton Grill. At 7.20 p.m., Victor met a pal for drinks at the Grove Public House in Beauchamp Place. And from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m., a man known only as Mr. Canaper played roulette at Crockford's Casino in Mayfair, where he won £200. At 4 a.m., he tried to get into the Playboy Club, but as his application was rejected, he called it night. He didn't sleep at the Hilton, as he said. Instead, he most likely found a late-night bar and saved his last dawn as a free man. It was hardly an amazing night out. But as it was his last, it was better than what he'd had before or was yet to come. On Sunday the 10th of August 1969, at roughly 9am, Victor yawned as he staggered down Eaton Place, still feeling a little bit tipsy, as he chuckled to himself at the night he just had. Inside, having cradled his dead boyfriend for one last time, he changed out of his now-bloodied pink shirt and hid it in the laundry. Hello? Police? There is a dead body upstairs. I think it's Sir William's butler. At the end of his second statement, being the most truthful of all his confessions, Victor would state, I'm sorry about the grief I have brought upon Frank's parents, the effect on Sir William and his family, and the shame and guilt I shall bear for the rest of my life. I suppose in the years to come, I shall always remember this horrible night, and I will no doubt pay for it in many more ways than one. On the 24th of November 1969, at the Old Bailey, Victor Ford Lloyd pleaded not guilty to the murder of Frank Hocking. Assessed at St Bernard's in Southall, the same psychiatric hospital that his mother was sent to, Dr. P.D. Scott, a consultant psychiatrist, diagnosed Victor as a psychopathic personality. Cursed with a lack of empathy for others, an inability to learn from his experiences, being incapable of forming lasting relationships, and being entirely amoral. Although he was described as a textbook psychopath, he was declared fit to stand trial. But under the Homicide Act, this abnormality of his brain reduced his responsibility. On the 27th of November 1969, Victor Ford Lloyd was found guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He was sentenced to life in prison and he died in Birmingham in August 2003. Everything which was good about his life had been stolen in an instant 
But the irony was, it was all his fault. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. <sighs> there we go, folks. Oh, let's check that. I hope that was recording. That was recording. Sometimes... Sometimes I have those moments when I'm like, I'm recording, I've, you know, because it takes a little while to get a bit of a run-up at the start sometimes to record it. And the first couple of minutes, I have to keep recording and recording until I get it right. And then I'm like, right, I'm on a run. And then I press record again and I start. But sometimes I go back in and I go, oh, shit. What if I didn't press record? Because I've done that before. Done that before, haven't I? Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. This is the unscripted, unedited bit, as mentioned. If you're new to Extra Mile, uh, this is the bit where uh, have a little chat. Uh, we would make a cup of tea normally, but actually, maybe I might. Maybe I might make a cup of tea. Uh, normally, we'd have a cake, but I'm still on a diet. Uh, we'd have a waffle. We'd do some quiz questions, and I fill you in on some extra stuff to go in this episode. Shall I do a cup of tea? Yeah, let's do a cup of tea. Right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna open some windows. Because uh, it's, it's a little bit meaty out today, a little bit hot. And it's so hot, uh, you can hear all the air bubbles underneath the boat. Because, uh, as mentioned last week, because of the change in the temperature, uh, all of the, um, the different gases uh, from uh, the vegetation on the, underneath of the, the canal, they're kind of coming up now. And it's a weird situation where you're, um, especially when you're new to boating, and you hear all these air bubbles, all, the, all this kind of blah, 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 and you think to, 
uh, that's the sound of air bubbles. Uh, oh shit. Uh, and you think to yourself, oh shit, I'm sinking because you hear all this bloop, 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 and it's constant. Uh, but what you don't realise is just, it's just vegetation. There you go, there's a, a exciting lesson learned for the day. Wow, thank you, Michael. We've learned more about canal systems and, and the ecology of the canal system. Lovely, wow. Uh, what's everything do? What's going on here in the world? Oh, a bit sore this week. Uh, some of you on social media will know I had a bit of an accident last week. I was cycling into town to record last week's video. Oh no, which was this week's uh, video for this episode, uh, which you, uh, as patron subscribers, you get nice and early and you get those exclusively or like about a week later about ten, five days later you get them on my youtube channel when they're very good i'm getting quite good at them but i cycling into town very early it was cold a little bit damp outside so my my uh, trainers were a little bit wet i was cycling in through shepherd's bush the kush 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 uh it was rush hour but luckily on the patch of road i was on it had gone quiet for some unknown reason and then cycling on along the road which was good because there were no cars in front behind me uh, cycling along one of my pedals one of my feet came off my pedals my right slipped off and the bike the the steering just went like 90 degrees the wrong way and then because the wheel had locked i went head over heels over um over right into the into the tarmac really i wasn't going super fast but i was going to a decent lick and i hit it really 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 bloody hard like really hard uh and uh luckily because it was a really cold day i'd already got my helmet on anyway which everyone should wear a helmet i was wearing gloves as well so fingerless but so most of my hands were okay uh, i was wearing a top over so um even my arms are okay even though i've got loads of cuts on my arms because I, I really scraped myself quite heavily but because it was cold i was wearing my helmet and a bobble out underneath so actually even though i landed head first into the concrete into the tarmac uh my head isn't hurting luckily i didn't injure uh, my neck any bones at all which was good just lots of cuts and bruises so um i got up and I thought I'd best get out of the road because there were already cars pipping their horns because they were angry at this this person who had an accident in front of them. It was like, how dare you have an accident? I need to get in to cafe and get my breakfast. Uh, so I, I moved my uh, oddly shaped bike, uh, which is now oddly shaped with uh, my hands bleeding and my legs bleeding and blood blood coming out of my, my top because it was bleeding through my uh, arms as well. And I, I got to the side of the pavement and I, I sat there and I was doing that thing you do. I was pacing up and down because I was like, you know, a little bit shocked and trying to, and, and it, everything seemed to hurt as well. Uh, and then I realized I, I thought, oh shit, I'm getting sweaty and I'm going really pale. I'm feeling a bit dizzy. So I thought I'll, I'll sit down. I realized I was starting to pass out because, you know, adrenaline kicks in, shock kicks in because you, on those moments, I think you're, you're like, oh, wow, I'm glad, I'm glad I came away from it. Okay, I didn't break anything, but then kind of all the shock kicks in. So I, I sat down at the side of the road next to my kind of oddly shaped bike with blue, blue blood pouring down my legs and my arms. And no one stopped. No one stopped. People walked by. People who'd seen the accident didn't stop. Cars who were behind or on the other direction didn't stop. Quite a few people walked past me. Some people on their phones. One person decided to uh, take some pictures or some video. I I couldn't really say anything because I was I was passing out. I knew I was passing out. Uh, and all, the only thing I could think of was f you to everyone who was walking past. Um, and I just sat. I was just sitting there, breathing deeply, trying not to pass out anymore because I had my laptop and all my stuff with me. And uh, the problem is, 
sometimes people can be arseholes and they just see someone collapse and they will mug them uh so uh yeah that was happening uh but luckily a guy had gone past in his scooter and then he was coming back the other way and he was like you okay mate and i was like yeah i'm fine thank you Do you know what it's like you always say yeah i'm fine thank you and he's like no really are you okay and i was like yeah yeah i'm okay just just a bit bit woozy uh but he, he wouldn't take that he stopped he came over he had a chat it was a very nice guy called lee uh had, had a good chat for about five or ten minutes which was really good because you know what it distracted me from everything uh, and he waited around until I was kind of okay to get back on my feet. So, which was really nice. So, there are good people in the world. There are nice people who um, who look out for other people. We had a good chat about it because he'd had a, an accident a, a little while earlier, a couple of weeks ago. And he had the same. He said, you know, almost no one stopped. And then one person did. And uh, same with me, same happened to me years ago. Well, I you know, if I see someone in a bad situation, I always go and help them out. Um, but yeah, so uh, we had a good giggle about that. Then he went on his way. And you know what? You know what? He was an hour late for work already. And even though he was an hour late, uh, he made the decision. He was like, do you know what? I would rather be even later than I am now and get into more shit. But as long as I'm... Uh, able to say that i've checked on someone a, a fellow human being and checked that they're okay and uh yeah so that was nice so uh yeah that that's a bit so i'm still sore now still sore now right right inside is very bruised can't move it very much uh so it's very sore but i'm still still doing what i need to do just resting and i'm on the painkillers i'm gonna i'm gonna get myself off the painkillers because nothing worse than staying on painkillers pain is good pain tells you that you you're hurt you should focus on pain so i'm still walking i actually cycled back after the incident i fixed my bike carried on most of my journey i, I trained a little bit as well um so that's that's been my exciting week um uh, thank you to new Patreon supporters. We have uh, Kim Osborne. Thank you, Kim. You're a new Patreon supporter. I hope you're enjoying all of the exclusive goodies. Very exclusive goodies. Uh, especially with uh, the bloody butler. There's been uh, a lot of crime scene photos, which is ones that I won't be sharing anywhere else. So if you if you want to see things that you won't see anywhere else, and this, I don't mean by this, uh, stuff that you, other people won't be able to share on other podcasts because this is stuff that no one has and I'm deliberately not sharing it anywhere. This is exclusive stuff. You cannot get this on the internet. You can search for it. You won't find it. I don't even put it on my blog. So if you want exclusive stuff, subscribe to Patreon for just it's like, it's like £2.50 a month. That's nothing. Uh, also a thank you to Kat and Janine USA, uh, two supporters from the uh, donation. They sent donations via the supporter link, which is in the show notes. So thank you to both of those. I would say I've spent it on cake, but I haven't because I'm still trying to be good. I'm like three weeks in. I'm still trying to be good. Uh, so let's do some uh, quickie questions and then we'll dive into some extra stuff with this episode because there's lots to say. Um, so get ready, everyone. <gasps> Deep breath. Whoa, right got my diet coke here diet coke and a tea i'll have a bit of diet coke in a bit uh question number one uh, what was the name of uh, the black pomeranian this was probably a question from last week so but i thought i'd put it back in question number two uh what was victor's nickname for frank uh question number three what was the name of, of the detective in charge of the investigation uh you get a point if you can name his first name 
with his surname and you get an extra point if you can get his full title as well um question four what police station was victor burp what question four what police station was victor taken to question five what was frank's father's name Question six, which alcohol detox centre did Sir William send Victor to? Question seven, what did Victor eat at the Brompton Grill? There two things that he ate. What did he eat? Uh, and question eight, this is a three-parter. So, Sir William helped Victor to get three jobs. But what were they? Oh, oh exciting. This exciting stuff, all these questions three jobs what were they right let's try and dive into some of this extra stuff because obviously last week we couldn't do as much as we wanted to because i hadn't written because I, I write these in kind of consecutively uh so i hadn't written this bit yet um so yeah coco van uh w- with uh with victor's um he he tried to help the police out with details about where he was at what different times, but he seemed to leave a lot of diff- different pieces out, which is why last week it was referenced that uh, both him and Frank were at Coco Van, the restaurant, the French restaurant on Harriet Street, at two thirty. But it's not entirely true. Frank turned up at one o'clock, and then uh, Victor turned up at two thirty, and then they both left at about three o'clock, having had a bit of an issue, uh, which leads us back to the Ark, uh, Noah's Ark restaurant the night before. See, this is what makes it all complicated because uh, uh, Victor would say he said that like they they went out to Noah's Ark on the on the Saturday night. Uh, but that throws everything off. That throws off the entire timeline because obviously he's suggesting that they went to Cockervan uh, and then they went back to the flat and then they went out to Noah's Ark, which gives him an alibi uh, for the murder of uh, Victor. Because no, for the murder of Frank, I'm doing this thing again uh, because obviously Frank would have died roughly around five o'clock. We reckon just before five o'clock, although no one was there to witness it. So we can't get an exact timeline. And given the fact that it took him six hours to die, it made it even harder to kind of work out exactly at what point he did die. So the, the, if you're on, you on Patreon, uh, I, I, I hope I've uploaded this. The police actually did a timeline, and they, the, as they always do, and uh, they worked out who had seen them at what point and who'd spoken to them, and then they pieced it all together. And you can see there's a real gap uh, before five o'clock. So that must be the point at, at which the murder took place. Um, it couldn't have happened uh, when they were at Noah's Ark, because that was the night before, even though... Uh, Victor would said it happened on Saturday night but he would later come back and go oh I think I've got all my dates wrong and then he would he would say that he was drunk most of that day and he's on uh, sleeping pills at the moment so all of his timelines are to cock uh, but we know this uh, was definitely uh, the last place that uh, Frank was seen because in his stomach was his final meal of spinach potatoes and tomato uh, which was as seen in his autopsy and they said that the, his, he'd eaten the meal uh, a couple of hours before his death um, they reckoned about three to four hours so that kind of fits in with about a five o'clock timeline um, as mentioned at uh, there was uh, I'm not going to do that one because that gives away a question so 
this is what throws things off as well because uh, they used to a chauffeur twice on different days so in episode one we make reference to Herm- Hermanus Loganberg who was the chauffeur but he was the Saturday chauffeur uh, the other one was James Olive who was the Friday chauffeur they used a lot of the cars that were meant to be for work purposes but they uh you know Sir William was kind of easy on that so uh, this kind of throws things off as well uh what else we got boodles boodles on that let's go into a lot of stuff about the uh night out obviously i was going to do a big thing about his kind of night out that night but i realized um the important thing was kind of the elements to do with being around the murder uh and what happened and who said what and actually the the shift that we saw in the story where you you know episode one was all about uh victor in his kind of difficult life and his upbringing about how these these people had really kind of given him a great life and uh how they how he kind of really should have respected them more but actually when you look at what his life was with them it particularly it wasn't particularly good in a way do you know they gave him a little bit of prestige but you know it's uh they, they were alcoholics there was a kind of a weird kind of love triangle going on it was kind of he he should really have got out of there really but but he didn't you know it, that kind of life gave him everything that he wanted for his future in order to kind of escape from his past so um he'd done it so boodles um this was something he'd done before sir william had asked him to sir william would write a letter this was mentioned in episode one as well sir william would write a letter hand it to uh victor normally to frank but if frank was busy victor would do it in his place he would go over to boodles and boodles would give him a a cash advance of like 25 pounds which is about 300 quid today uh this is an era before atm so that kind of makes sense uh sir william was a well-respected man so the company hadn't got a problem with doing this because they knew that he was always good for his money um alfred russell the head porter had got the call saying uh, uh victor my chauffeur is going to come along with a check can you give a pash, uh, cash advance but he he oh i just spilt my tea uh he said that uh he he it didn't feel like it was sir william who was making that call but what's a head porter gonna do is he is he going to turn around and go? I, I I don't think you're Sir William. Is he going to risk his his job and things like that by doing that, or um, is he going to is going to accept it and then you know they can they can deal with it later on, uh, or just let just let the seniors deal with it, which is probably a better idea to do. Um, five fifty five p.m. to six fifteen p.m. Uh, Raymond Humberstone, the barman at the Dorchester Hotel, said that Victor came in. He ordered a Bloody Mary. He lit a cigarette. He made a call. Um, um, I didn't put this in the story because it slows it down, but he was sitting there smoking using an antique lighter and a gold cigarette holder, which was Sir William's, uh, but he accidentally left it in the ashtray. He went to, went to the Brompton Grill, uh, which is over by the Brompton Oratory. Um, Victor said that he was Sir William when he went in there. We we don't know. We don't think so. this was the kind of place that uh, Sir William went to. Uh, so he had a nice meal. I won't say what because that's one of the quiz questions. Well done, me. Uh, he ordered a very nice, expensive bottle of wine, uh, but he didn't seem. To, he drank most of the wine. He ate most of the, uh, supped most of the coffee, but he didn't eat the meal. I can't mention what it was. Um, so whether he was feeling unwell at that point, whether he was a little bit too drunk, we don't know. But the waiter did say his eyes looked bleary and he looked as if he'd been drinking. Um, 
the meal was roughly around five pounds. Uh, he wrote a check. Uh, this was another one of Frank Hocking's checks that he forged uh, on the Patreon account. If you go in there, there'll be uh, you'll see one of the forged checks. Uh, and he did he did what he often did was um, he wrote a check. Uh, how much was it for? He wrote a check for seventeen pounds. Uh, and got the waiter to give him eleven pounds seventeen shillings and two pence back, which you could do in those days. Two twenty p. Sorry, seven twenty p.m. He uh, asked the driver. He said, "I want to go to the Grove Public House on Beauchamp Place because he was going to meet up with a friend." Uh, he said he wanted a bigger car as he was expecting a larger group. This is why he was on the phone. He's expecting about six people to turn up. He's expecting a blowout that night. Um, so the driver, Hermanus Loganberg, went back to the garage on Chester Row and he picked up a, uh, a Daimler. Um, he washed the car and he drove it back to uh, the Grove Public House and he waited for him, but he couldn't find him anywhere. Um, it, everything seems to have gone wrong for him at this point. He was did seem to expect some friends to turn up. Um, he met up with uh, Halwyn Tanner and Rhonda Barker, who were two of his friends, they met up for a couple of drinks. He met them while he was in there. Uh, they chatted. He invites them for a drink, but they're kind of going out for a meal. So he's kind of stuck. He's doing this night out. But anyone who is friends is kind of not really interested. They're elsewhere. Uh, he's bragging with them at that point that he's waiting for his Rolls Royce to turn up. Obviously, they haven't got a Rolls Royce. They've got a Daimler, but that, you know, it's good enough for him. Uh, everyone said he'd clearly been drinking. Um, and it was about 8.10pm that the barman, Thomas Hodgkinson, ref- refused to serve him a gin and tonic as he said he'd had enough. Victor glared, glared at him and walked out. Um, just having a swig of tea. Lovely, lovely swig of tea. Uh, at 8.30pm, uh, he went back to the Hilton and he gave a false name because he wanted an introduction card to get into Crockford's Casino. Um, these exclusive clubs, you can't just walk in. It's not like the uh, like the casino at the Hippodrome uh, where anyone can walk in. These places, you need to be known. You've got to be invited. And a lot of the concierges in the poshest hotels, if they see you and you're kind of a high roller... They have these special cards that have kind of a, 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 a like coding or an, a, a design on the back, and you can you can hand that in, and that's kind of an introduction to be allowed to apply to get into those casinos. Uh, where are we? Uh, there's I won't go into this, but there was a whole whole boring story about um, him driving off and realizing he'd left the the cigarette lighter at the hotel and he had to go back. It's boring, 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 boring. Crockford's nine forty five. He finally made it to Crockford's. Um, uh, he was greeted by the receptionist. He, he gave his introduction card, uh, which had uh, was from the Hilton. They knew that because it had a small green triangle and it was stamped on the back. And it was also signed by the concierge as well. Uh, he entered roughly around 9.45pm. Uh, Victor entered the club uh, and his driver, he had his driver with him at that point, who was Hermanus Loganberg. Uh, the driver pulled into the garage and uh, they managed to get him some refreshment, which was very nice. Um, but um, he, Victor didn't go in as Sir William Ackroyd, because obviously Sir William was known. But hence, the uh, the card was addressed to Mr. Knaper, which is a lovely name. Bit of an alias there. Um, about, e- about 11 o'clock, that's roughly around the time that we worked out that uh, Frank would have died. Uh, he would have been lying in bed 
bleeding to death with a brain hemorrhage, unable to move, entirely paralysed uh, for about six hours. So would have been, So when he was at the casino playing on the roulette and playing cards and having a lovely time, uh, that's when uh, that's when Frank would have died. Um, at twelve p.m., Mister Knaper, i.e. Victor, was seen playing roulette at the number two table. The head cashier saw him and said he was there until closing time. Uh, he was the last man playing, and the cashier confirms he won around two hundred pounds. They reckon just over. Uh, what else was there? What else was there? Uh, he was also seen by. Oh yeah, here we go. Um, uh, roughly between three thirty and four a.m., PC Peter Brown, who was on duty in Curzon Street, where the Croxford Casino is, he saw Victor. He knew him. Uh, he was swaying. Uh, Victor asked the the constable, uh, what time is it? Uh, the PC's watch was broken, but he estimated it was around 3.30am. Uh, uh, Victor continued walking down Park Lane towards the Playboy Club. Uh, and as mentioned before, the Playboy Club is uh, Hugh Hefner and his, uh, his trashy, sleazy shite uh, came over from America over to here and set up on Park Lane. I think, I think there's a Playboy Club in Mayfair now, but this was originally, I think it was a 45 Park Lane originally um this is all you'll really find about this case in the newspapers was the fact that he went to the playboy club and they interviewed uh sharon by south who was one of the bunny girls and a receptionist at the playboy club and another lady as well who i've got here antonia norrish and they have pictures of them and they're like oh this is exciting look at these sexy ladies nothing to do with the murder just about some sexy ladies who happen to work at um uh, uh the playboy club um uh victor arrived he filled out the membership slip in the name of sir william Ackroyd. um and unfortunately he got into a bit of a disagreement with these because he's still kind of unsure uncertain why as a gay man why he would want to go to the the playboy club surely he surely he wouldn't want to see ladies i don't know maybe see that's the thing maybe 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 he wasn't gay maybe he was just as a you know maybe he was just gay in order to kind of find his way into kind of uh the richer older man's kind of monies or maybe he was bisexual we don't know or or maybe he just thought this would be a gig or maybe it's a high profile thing so we thought i'll give it a go um they saw that he was drunk they saw that he was uh they didn't seem to believe that he was sir william uh, so he was refused entry by the club's security officer uh, they told him that even though he'd filled out the membership form he'd have to wait 48 hours for this to be approved uh saying this was standard practice um they said he hung around the entrance to the club and then finally left uh sharon said i had already decided that i would void his membership i only got him to complete it to keep him quiet i got the impression that he had been drinking um she would state i, I knew victor ford lloyd and i did not think he was a suitable member so there you go there you go um there's a bit of a, a kind of a gap in the timeline here because obviously that was around 4 a.m and then he returned he supposedly returns home at 9am where he discovers the body but we don't know that that's a bit of a gap so either he went to a late because it's to go from park lane down to where he was if you hopped in a cab that's that's 15 20 minutes you could walk it in an hour so you know uh, either he went to a late night another late night bar or he went back early which begs the question what did he do when he got back to the flat uh, we know he changed his shirt. Uh, it 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 seems weird that he changed changed his shirt because he'd already changed out the white shirt, which was bloodstained when he murdered Frank. 
but then he came back and for some reason his shirt uh, was blood the pink one was bloodstained as well so the likelihood is that he probably hugged Victor's dead body or did something we don't know we don't know but that caused him to have to change his shirt because that was bloodstained as well mostly around the cuffs uh, which is very odd uh, we know that these are definitely the the right shirt that he was in there because he removed the shirt the likelihood is he probably ripped off the shirt or something because there were some buttons found underneath the chaise long and underneath the little uh, uh, kind of portable trolley that was in front of the um, the chaise long as well uh, and this was found in the laundry uh what else have we got what else have we got that's going on in the world uh injuries to the body um there are numerous lacerations to frank's body so as mentioned some old some new a depression fracture number one uh which was one and a half inches long one and three quarter inches wide two inches deep on the upper part uh of kind of just above the right ear um there was a second slightly larger one just above three and a half inches in diameter in roughly the same area so although Victor said that he hit him once put over the cover and then he said he hit him three or four two or three times there only seems to be two that they kind of have uh mentioned here uh there was a large amount of swelling to the back of the head near the crown which had turned blue extensive hemorrhaging to the brain stem and temporal lobes uh his airways were congested with vomit uh congealed vomit was also found on his left shoulder um rigor mortis had been had set in uh the, on the doctor's arrival which was about uh, just before 10 o'clock he said that he'd been dead uh somewhere between 10 and 14 hours as the and the room temperature was 79 degrees fahrenheit so he was able to base it on that someone's having a weird old rant opposite don't know what that's all about I know he's moving on though. People do that. They have a little rant on the canal. I think they think they're in a private space, but they don't seem to realise. No, there are people like me watching. Uh, other evidence, as mentioned, there was a clump of hair found on the carpet. Um, that was Frank's. The door lock had been smashed in. Originally, in one of the earlier statements, I took this out. Um, Victor had said that the broken lock to uh, Sir William's door was done a couple of weeks ago. But it wasn't. It was done that night. Police were able to see that kind of the damage was pretty new. Uh, so why he would say that, we don't know. Uh, broken lamp found uh, behind the head of the bed. Uh, this was where the attack happened. We don't know. Don't know why kind of uh, the lamp was smashed. Maybe he just knocked. Maybe he knocked it over after he attacked him. We don't know. Uh, initially the weapon wasn't found but later they found the hammer which was underneath a cushion uh, on one of the sofas upstairs what else is there I think that might be it I think that's pretty much everything yeah yeah um what else we got Let's just see how much time we've got. I'm not going to go in there. I've got all the uh, the witness statements. I'm not going to read all of Victor's witness statements because he gave a lot. He gave a, a he gave a verbal statements, and then he said uh, the first statement was kind of the one where he he said no, we went out to the ark, and then we came back, and then I left him at the door, and then I went out for coffee and cigarettes, and uh, uh, I came back later on, and he was dead. And oh, but in in one of these uh, earlier statements, he said that he came back. Um, and Victor was already up and they were kind of arguing 
Uh, but nothing really happened. They just went to bed. But this doesn't make sense because it's like the timelines are all off and he would be dead by that point. It's just it's all over the shop. Uh, so he did another second interview um, and he admitted he admitted more that they'd had an altercation and that he was provoked. And then he grabbed the hammer and it was meant to be kind of a more of a threat. Um but still, but still, he keeps adding in all these details about the timeline being off. But still, even in the last witness statement, he still refers to himself as a butler, even though we know he's not. So uh, I've kind of pieced together in this episode as much as we can believe about what he said is true. But how much of it is true, we kind of just don't know. It's it's kind of all over the shop. It's a bit messy. He still makes reference to him staying at the Hilton Hotel, which he he didn't. The police investigated that. They they checked room 1215 and there was a lady there. And then they checked every kind of... Um, all the rooms at Hilton that night and there wasn't any in his name or Sir William's name or any of the aliases he had used. Uh, there's no evidence that he was there at all. Mm, oh, what else is there? I think that's it thing at it yeah i'm not going to go into all the witness statements because that they are long long and boring and bullshitty uh i think that's it yeah yeah good right i'm going to do those quiz questions where are where are they michael where are they where are they they're up here somewhere there we are right don't forget i may have i haven't edited this episode yet even though you've heard the edited one i haven't edited it yet so um some of the questions might get edited out or i might have just balls them up at that point uh, on the bit you just listened to right let's get going question number one what was the name of the black pomeranian it was albert question two what was victor's nickname for frank it was frankie imaginative question three what was the name of the detective in charge of the investigation it was detective chief superintendent ivor reynolds question four what police station was victor taken to it was gerald road i've seen it i went i went to visit it on, on my little walk around I, I took a picture of it and it's uh it's odd there's like a row of really nice houses and it just sits there and it's not a police station anymore it, it's just a regular house but outside is one of the old police lamps and it just it just it looks really odd uh question five what was frank's father's name it was william hocking question six which alcohol detox centre did Sir William send Victor to? It was the Priory. If you don't know, that's that's the one where uh, all the celebrities go and they go, oh, don't, don't film me, I'm at the Priory. Oh, I'm trying to detox from all my, my drug and sex and uh, uh, alcohol addictions. Oh, don't look at me, I'm wearing sunglasses. And it's like, oh, yeah, you just want the attention again. Uh, question seven. What did Victor eat at the Brompton Grill? It was vichyssoise and crab meat. Uh, vichyssoise being cold soup. I think it's chilled soup. I only know that because of Batman. When Bruce Wayne eats it and he goes, oh, it's cold. And then uh, Alfred goes, of course it, of course it, of course it is, sir. It's vichyssoise. It's supposed to be cold. Good line. Uh, question eight. Right, this is a three-parter. Uh, Sir William helped Victor to get three jobs, but what were they? So the first one was a salesman for was a salesman for John Michael Taylor's on Savile Row. 
The second one was a catering assistant at Searcy Tansley, which was a catering company. Uh, and the third one was as a waiter at Fortnum and Mason's. Only Victor said that he was a butler. Who oh, was a butler? Right, I think that's it. Hope you all enjoyed that. Oh, God, that was a long extra mile. Thank you, for everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back next week with another case, a one-parter next week. Uh, have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. Lot of love. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.